Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew and I'm the lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching and listening from. If this is your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. They fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thanks. We're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. Well, we're at the end of our teaching series called Forgotten Voices, but we're going to come back and revisit the minor prophets again. We only covered four of them this time around, and there are several more we need to get to. So we're going to come back to them at a later date. But if you join us for the first time today, can I just you know, recap real quickly some things that we learned to get, get you caught up on the same page here? We started off with the story of Hosea, and we learned you know, how deep God's love is for us in the process. And then we took a look, um, a unique look, too at Habakkuk's conversation with God. And the main takeaway there is that when we don't understand, you know, what God's doing or maybe what God isn't doing, right? We need to trust him. And then finally last week, man, we got back to the fundamentals. Micah taught us what to do when we get off track spiritually. Stand for what's right, show mercy, walk in humility. Those are good words of advice. So what, what does our last minor prophet have in store for us? Well, he really spoke directly to a topic that's front and center in our world at the moment, um, you know, which, which is really justice, right? Or as we hear it talked about today, social justice. Now, it may seem like social justice has got a pretty well-defined meaning, but if you ask 10 different people what they believe social justice is, you're going to get 10 different answers. And that's because there's a lot of ideas about social justice, and those ideas vary based on a variety of different factors and backgrounds. And I want to add this too, depending on what generation you're born into, social justice is either something you kind of just don't think a whole lot about, or it's something you're really passionate about. Okay, so sometimes that makes a difference. I do want to make something really clear before we jump into this teaching, though. So because of the varied ideas of social justice that exist among so many different types of folks, it can be a divisive topic. So we're not going to look at different political definitions of social justice, and we're not going to critique any social justice movements that are out there. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a dive into what justice, insofar as God's word is concerned, really is, okay? So one of the problems has been the, the very high number of Christians who are just so sold out to social justice, they completely leave Christ out of the equation altogether. And here's the problem when you leave Jesus out. Um, our actions become meaningless. Our, our intentions are valid, they're pure, but without Christ, we lose our way, and we drift further and further towards a political or social movement's agenda instead of the only agenda which really matters for a Christian, and that's God's, right? But we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so Christ-centered and biblical justice, it matters. And I'm going to use those terms, Christ-centered justice and biblical justice, interchangeably here today. And the reason is, there's a difference between you know, what God's Word calls us to do and what a political or social movement calls us to do. One of them is focused on meeting temporary needs and issues in this life, but the other, it has as its goal, life-changing transformation, which lasts for an eternity. 
So while other minor prophets will talk about biblical justice, no one quite addresses it the same way as, as, as Amos. So Amos is living and ministering in Israel at the exact same time of Hosea. And if you want a little bit of you know, background to what Israel was like, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen or watch the first message in this series where we focus on Hosea and we kind of go into that background in Israel. But much of Amos's message centers on judgment falling on Israel for their idolatry and a lack of justice. Listen to what he says here in chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, the people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample the helpless in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security in the house of their gods. They drink wine, bought with unjust fines. So you get an idea of the corruption and the sin happening in Amos' day in this passage, right? So Israel is at the height of economic prosperity. They're wealthy, they're powerful, and, and often wealth and power are on the rise. Spiritual decay is as well. And we have this natural tendency to lean more on ourselves instead of God when we see an increase in our own wealth and power, right? It's a dangerous place to be because as we trust in ourselves, we become further and further removed from God's hand of protection and provision. And this is where Israel finds itself. Now, one important piece of information to note as we get into Amos today, biblical justice in the Old Testament primarily dealt with the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner or you know, immigrants. So all throughout Deuteronomy, which is Old Testament law, we read that Israel was to treat these individuals fairly and justly. So keep that in mind. When we talk about those who are oppressed in Amos's day, these are the people we're talking about, all right? So the first passage we, we looked at gave us a window into what was happening in Israel. We read the wealthy were selling the poor, meaning they're involved in, in slavery, really, right? That's, that's verse number six. Slavery, by the way, is not something that just died out 150 years ago. There are more slaves on planet Earth today than at any other point in human history. In fact, Charleston, South Carolina, where we are, we're located in the upstate, Charleston's in the low country, it's one of the leading sex slave ports in our nation. And that's why we support organizations like Free International. You know, when you fill out a Connect card as, at our in-person service or even online, if you're watching or listening, you can select Free International as one of the nonprofits you want us to donate to. They rescue and free those who are caught in human trafficking and sex slavery, not just around the world, but also within our own borders right here. Verse number seven, that, that gives us an indicator that that judicial system is really not working as it should. Like, look at what the Lord says in verse number seven. He says that they, this is the judges, the courts here, they shove the oppressed out of the way. Who's being trampled on here? Well, it, it's the poor and the widows and the orphans, the immigrants. They're suffering injustice in the courts while the wealthy and the powerful are getting away with their crimes. And if you're frustrated seeing privileged and wealthy and powerful elites on both sides of the the political aisle, I should add, and of a multitude of different backgrounds get away with wrongs that you and I would get put in prison for, just know it ain't new. It's been happening for thousands of years. It was happening in Israel, and God saw it, and He calls His own people out for it. 
Verse number 8 tells us that at religious events, the wealthy walked around with what they had extorted from the poor. I like how the Living Bible puts uh, verse number 8. Listen to how the Living Bible describes that verse. At their religious feasts, they lounge in clothing stolen from their debtors. And in my own temple, they offer sacrifices of wine they purchased with stolen money. The Old Testament law basically required the needs of the poor be put up as collateral, right? But it should get returned to them at the end of the day. Cloaks, sandals, that kind of thing. It was God's way of reminding Israel that people, not wealth or materials, okay, really truly matter. And so as Israel strayed further away from God, their own people began to suffer at the hands of their fellow countrymen. Does that sound familiar? Because you can make a pretty good case that we've been doing this for decades in our own nation, right? Now, there's a definite link here between Israel's idolatry and a lack of justice. Whatever God's people, you know, whenever they engage in idolatry, a lack of justice always became a byproduct of their sin. They neglected the poor. They, they forgot about the widow and the orphan. They oppressed the immigrants. And darkness, you know, here's the thing about darkness. It doesn't set other people free. It only enslaves them. Like, you can't make the case that you're freeing people by oppressing other people. All you're doing is swapping one people group for another. And the problem, which really is sin here, it's not going to go away. It's only going to get worse the further from God that you get. So God doesn't seek to oppress us, okay? He, he seeks to free us, and it's why someone whose heart belongs to the Lord is naturally drawn to helping other people and caring for the poor and healing the broken and standing for the oppressed. Like, we're talking about biblical justice here. In fact, our response to biblical justice can even be a reflection of the condition that our heart is in. When God deals with justice in Scripture, He's not speaking to an issue or a movement or an ideology. Much of today does that kind of stuff in our world, but that's not what God does. He's speaking to the root problem, the condition of a person's heart. And I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Look at Proverbs 14, 31. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. And another proverb, 29.7. The godly care about the rights of the poor. The wicked, they don't care at all. And then check this out from James. Go New Testament on us here, okay? Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. There are over 300 verses dealing with justice and God's Word. And it's why I've been referring to the term biblical justice here today. The Bible has a lot to say about it. And these three verses were just a few of them. God's Word clearly teaches you cannot ignore the suffering and the oppressed. Christians have a spiritual obligation to care for them. But I also want to point out the last verse from James. You know, James is making it pretty clear that we're to embrace Christ-centered justice. And at the same time, we're not to allow the world to corrupt us. A lot of corruption comes with the guise of doing good, especially in the realms of social justice. What James is talking about at the end of this verse is the distinction which should exist between Christians and those who are not following God. Christians should be involved in biblical justice because it reflects the loving heart of God and it shows people who Christ is by our actions. And that's the difference really between human-centered social justice and Christ-centered biblical justice. Several years ago, we started a food bank we were pastoring in the Charleston area. It was before we came to start Radiant Church here in Seneca. 
And I had it on my heart to start a ministry like that in our area because around 72% of the people in proximity to our church lived at or below the poverty line. The nearest food bank for these guys um, who lived mostly in rural areas was an hour or more away. So a couple in our church about a year later approached me and said, hey, we think, you know, God's calling us to start a food bank. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is great. And we kind of got together and they became our food bank directors. And six years later from that point, and we were feeding 150 or more families every month. Every Thanksgiving, we gave away 300 ready to cook Thanksgiving meals, which included full size frozen turkeys. I mean, the impact was absolutely substantial in our community. Other food banks began opening in our community over time, but what made ours really different was that we prayed with every individual who came through who wanted it. Sometimes you had one or two folks who, who would decline, but almost every person would take you up on prayer. We didn't assign people a number. You know, we called them by name because they were humans with an identity and a story, right? We, we had people accept Christ in our food bank. We had people get healed. We had stories of God providing jobs and other needs. Like we didn't want to just meet a physical need. We wanted people to encounter Jesus. I had a mentor of mine one time. He, he told us, he goes, you know, if we feed the whole world, but the whole world goes to hell, we lose. And that's always stuck with me. We can't just, you know, feed people or just clothe people or do good things and meet some of the thresholds of social justice. Like, we have to give them Jesus, right? We got to give them Christ. And that's the difference. We want people to encounter the heart of God. Christ-centered justice meets the needs of the suffering and the oppressed, not just by addressing a physical need, but by addressing the spiritual need our souls have. When we strip away Jesus from the food bank, foster care, the safe house. We strip away what gives a broken person hope and freedom and purpose. You know, God made sure that people were cared for in the Old Testament because the physical act of caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant, it reflected the heart of a loving God. In the New Testament, Jesus, who fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets, by the way, he reminds us in Matthew 5, or Matthew 25, that what we do to the least of these, we in effect do to him. It's a further reminder of the importance of caring for both the physical and spiritual needs of the suffering and the oppressed. If our hearts are right with God, then we'll embrace the Christ-centered justice, which meets both a person's physical and a spiritual need. As we're embracing biblical justice, we also have to remember that we're blessed to be a blessing. You know, it's no secret that wealth is often at the center of social justice movements in our world. Human-centered social justice focuses on, on oftentimes redistributing wealth through a variety of means and effort to create equal outcomes. But what does a Christ-centered response focus on? Christ-centered justice focuses not on taking wealth and resources from one group to another, right? but on using what God has given you to bless other people. It's not coerced, it's not forced, it's done voluntarily out of a deep love for God and your fellow man who was created in the Lord's image just as you are and is as valuable in God's sight just as you are. One of the biggest mistakes we make with wealth is thinking, you know, like we earned it all on our own and we worked hard for it and we did this and that for it and it's all on us. Like we're responsible for all that we have, but we haven't really earned anything without God's help and God's sovereignty where God allows it, right? Like God entrusts varying degrees of wealth to people. Some have a lot, some don't have much. 
The story that Christ tells in the New Testament, the parable of the talents, features three different servants who were given different amounts of money from, you know, a lot to some to a little. The amount's not important in the story. What's important is that whatever God gives you, you have to do something with it. He entrusts you with wealth, and the expectation is you don't use it for your own gain and purpose, but use what he's given you responsibly, and part of that is blessing other people. Now, you don't have to like that. Right? I mean, you can think God should not provide equal opportunity, but instead God should provide equal outcomes. You can totally think that. That's fine. But that's just not how God works. The truth is, everything you and I have is all given to us by God. And we're managers of all that God has blessed us with. And so Israel, they forgot that in Amos' day. They forgot they were blessed by God to be a blessing to other people. And so Amos calls them out on it. In Amos chapter 4, verse 1, he compares the wealthy <laughs> to fat cows, man. That's what he calls them. Living in Israel's most fertile and wealthy region of Bashan. And I think that illustration is kind of self-explanatory. You know, they're, they're growing fatter in their pockets and lifestyles, where the majority are growing poor and more destitute at their expense. Then he turns his attention to the people living in Samaria, the capital city. And look at Amos chapter 6, verse number 1. What sorrow awaits you who lounge in luxury in Jerusalem, and you who feel secure in Samaria. You are famous and popular in Israel, and people go to you for help. But go over to Kelna and see what happened there. And then go to the great city of Hamath, down to the Philistine city of Gath. You're no better than they were, and look at how they were destroyed. You push away every thought of coming disaster, but your own actions bring the day of judgment closer. How terrible for you to sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on your couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and choice calves fattened in the stall. You sing trivial songs to the sound of the harp and fancy yourselves to be great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions. You care nothing about the ruin of your nation. Oh my goodness, what a, what a, what a verse, man. Therefore, you will be the first led away, to be led away as captives, and suddenly all your parties will end. On the surface, it looks like you know, God's railing against the wealthy, right? But the problem isn't their wealth. What God sees with the wealthy is the problem that they're flaunting their wealth with lavish expressions of greed and carelessness. To put it bluntly, they're throwing money around while many people suffered. They trusted in their riches, which is a way of trusting in themselves. They didn't need God. They didn't care for what God had to say. And they're so caught up in their own little bubble, they care nothing for the spiritual and physical ruin of their nation. Guys, we are seeing this all around us right now. They weren't a blessing to other people. In many ways, they were a curse. Well, scripture reminds us in 1 Timothy 6 that it's the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. People often stop in verse number 10. They don't keep reading. But if you continue to read verse number 11, you'll, you'll see this. Check this out. And some people craving money, you know, in other words, they've got a greed issue here. They've wandered from the true faith and they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. It's okay to have money as long as money doesn't have you. God's desire is we become a blessing by sharing what he's given us to those who are suffering. It's not redistribution. It's not a political ploy for some party. It's not to write off vast amounts of taxes. Like the heart of biblical justice stems from the transformative work of God's Spirit in our lives. And as we become more like Christ, who shares with His you know, glory and blessings, we share what we have with those in need, and we become a blessing ourselves. 
So at Radiant Church, we have multiple ways for you to be a blessing already, right? You can give to Free International. We just talked about that a second ago. You can give to Our Daily Bread, which is the local soup kitchen we support. You can give to Feed the Fearless, which provides drinks and snacks to our medical workers at Oconee Memorial and lifts their spirits up. You can give to Foothills Care Center, which cares for mothers and stands for the unborn. You can uh, give in our legacy offering. We're going to talk more about that. It's coming up at the end of November. I'll, I'll give you more details about that next week. But that, that, that's an offering that will make a difference for the future. You, you, will, you can give to our, our giving tree in December. We're going to have it out in our foyer. If you're not with us locally, you can, you can give online, okay? But we have gift cards we take from that gift tree, and we use them to help people in need all throughout the year. But you can also serve. You don't have to wait for a church-sponsored opportunity. In fact, I would encourage you not to do that kind of thing. Start serving in the soup kitchen next weekend. Start serving your elderly neighbors by taking care of a couple home improvement projects for them because they can't do it themselves anymore. Collect jackets and blankets and get a group of folks together and go down and hand them out to the homeless, man. Like, you can do those things now, like today. We've made a mistake thinking that serving doesn't count unless we have our church name and brand, you know, hey, it's our serve day, you know, to kind of go along with that. But if God has placed the ministry opportunity in your heart to serve and make a difference in our communities, man, you better go for it. Let us know about it. We'll inform other people about the opportunity, but, you know, and, and let folks know you're a part of the Radiant Church community too. Okay, that's fine. But you take charge. Like, you answer God's leading. You're an extension of the body of Christ. And you're an extension of the local body here at Radiant. Get up and do something. If you think you can't make a difference, I want you to consider this. We live in the richest nation on planet Earth. The average family makes about 10 grand per year around the world, okay? It, it sounds like a lot, but you know, 10,000 in America, they don't go very far. If you take out the Western nations, America, Europe, Australia, Canada, right? Take them out. That stat plummets because the reality is most of the world lives actually on less than $2 a day. While here in America, we comprise the top 1% globally. So I'm telling you, you can make a difference. We're blessed to be a blessing. God has entrusted wealth to us, not to hoard, but to bless. And I want to challenge you that when you, know, you give, give straight off the top. Don't give after the bills are paid. Don't give after you checked off things that you got to disperse money into. Do it first. And here's why. You'll never give off the leftovers. Put God first. Put others first. Don't let money have you be a blessing. Israel failed to listen to Amos' message, and as they drift further and further away from God, their own people suffered injustice after injustice until finally in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire brutally destroyed the nation. God had enough. Listen to me, man. We're our brother's keeper. It's our responsibility to care for the suffering and oppressed in our world. But we do it with Christ at the center. And we bless others with what God has given us because we understand that part of our role is to be a blessing to people. We meet the physical needs others have, but we always do it while meeting the spiritual needs as well. We have a real practical way to help folks in our community and around the world. Are you ready to let God use you to make that difference? Well, often we close out in prayer, and I'm going to do that today, but... This kind of message does not require some responsive prayer. It's not like a, hey, let me pray about this and, you know, I'll go about my day and figure it out. No, no, no. This is like an action kind of thing. You've got to do something. 
Maybe it's, it's giving and supporting justice financially. Maybe it's serving. But my encouragement to you today, do something next week, two weeks from now, that carries out biblical justice. And don't do it just one time and be done with it. Make engaging biblical justice a priority, a part of your everyday life. As people are cared for and are rescued out of sex slavery and fed and restored and healed and counseled, they're also going to get Christ. And they'll find life-changing and eternal transformation. And you played a role in that. So, Father, I thank you for those who are watching and listening here today. God, may you give them favor and they be successful in what they do. Lord, may they engage in biblical justice the right and correct way. May we not get caught up in social movements and political reforms. Those may God, may we be focused on caring for our fellow man. May we be givers of our time, of our finances, of our resources, of our talents to make a difference in people's lives where they see Christ in action. Lord, I thank you for the, the many folks who are out there who are watching and listening here today and they're feeling convicted, they're feeling stirred. They're feeling impassioned. Lord, I pray you would just take them and use them in all they have and who they are to make a difference in their communities. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.